Well, good morning to you all. For those who are here in person on our patio, for those who are watching at home, greetings. I'm Pastor Tim, by the way, if, if we haven't met yet. As we dig into Psalm 24, I um, want to give you, share a little bit about my day yesterday. I was cleaning out the garage, um, as I've been meaning to do for months and months and months. And so, you know, of course, the hottest day like of the, of the year, pretty much. Cleaning out the garage, spending all morning, all afternoon doing that. Called Yellow Brick Road, our thrift store and said, uh, set up a pickup. I got a bunch of stuff for you, lined it all up outside in the shade. It's gonna be perfectly dry, of course, right? For the next couple days, it's all set up, all lined up, okay? We're hot, we're tired, we come inside around 5 p.m., uh, working you know, with the family, and uh, we come go start watch a movie. Lights go out, power goes out. We say, okay, let's make the best of this. Katie takes a walk with my youngest. They wanna take a walk around. And then my older one, Avery, she's, you know, we say, let's set up the tent. I found the tent, finally. Once we're cleaning out the garage, we set up the tent in the backyard because we're going to have a camp out, right? First time camp out, first time finding the tent. So we uh, set up the tent. Uh, power comes back on. We you know, finish the movie the whole bit. We're, we're in there. The tent, we get all, of course, the most comfy blankets you can imagine that two girls want to camp out in right in the backyard, pink, fluffy, soft, the whole bit. We get all settled, go to sleep, 2 a.m., 2 a.m., I'm woke. It's flashing lights, I'm hearing sounds, and then I hear the sound of things dropping on our tent. And I look on my app and it says, thunderstorm, you know, rain is coming. And so I pulled, you know, made an audible, 2 a.m., woke up the kids and said, I think we gotta pack up. And so we take all the fluffy blankets out, we drag in into the house, of course, like, several cubic feet of pine needles. Awesome. We just cleaned the house. Um, took down the tent because I didn't have the whole rain guard all set up. I wasn't prepared for this, uh, that whole bit. And then my wife comes downstairs and says, what about all the giveaway stuff sitting on the driveway right now? I'm like, oh no, I have to pull everything back in that I just spent the whole day pulling out. So I don't know how your 2 a.m. was, uh, but um, that's when I was supposed to call my 4 a.m. friend, right? I was supposed to call my 4 a.m. friend. Hey, you want to come over and help me move boxes? So um, anyways, all to say we survived, right? I don't know how your morning was. But you know, we did get a moment. We're all woken up, right? 2 a.m., 3 a.m. hits, and we're just listening to the thunder. We're seeing the lightning flashes. We're hearing it sounded almost like hail um, where we were. Um, hearing, seeing the rainfall and, and hearing all the sounds. And it just was this glimpse. And it reminded me of Psalm 77, 18. It says this, the, it says, the crash of your thunder, God, was in the whirlwind. Your lightnings lighted up the world and the earth trembled and shook. Just gave me a little reminder of God's presence. And then remembering Jesus' words, Matthew 24, verse 27 for as the lightning comes from the east and shines as far as the west, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. And so I just want to give you a little hint. I think the Lord just wanted us to have a little bit of a reminder that he's real and he's coming again. He's here with us here. He's here with you there, wherever you are watching from home. He loves you and he's coming back. And the question is, from Psalm 24, we're going to look at today for a second time. We looked at it also uh, last time. The Lord is giving us a chance this morning to recognize his presence and to expect his return. 
I think I, I welcome that little reminder for us, right? To recognize his presence and to expect his return. Because Psalm 24 is all about that as we take a look into it. Take a look at verse 3 with me, or if you're watching, you look on the screen. It says, who shall ascend the hill of the Lord? Who may stand in his holy place? The psalmist begins with a question. Who can get close to God is how he begins. So the question is how we can be in good standing with this powerful king of creation, the Lord. And the answer is in verse 4. Verse 4 says this, he who has clean hands, he who has a pure heart, the one who does not lift up his soul to an idol, the one who, who, or who does not swear by what is false, that is the one who can ascend a hill of the Lord. This is the one who can get close to God. And so today is all about how do you get close to God? And the question will be, do you know this God? And here's the good news. Jesus, who knew the Psalms as well, because the Psalms were Jesus's prayer book. The Psalms were Jesus's song book. He knew this Psalm he knew this psalm was about him. And he told another story in Luke 15 about how to get close to God. And you may know it as the story of the prodigal son. Now, there's a whole book written by Pastor Tim Keller called The Prodigal God. It tells the story of the prodigal son from Luke 15 in kind of a fresh way. I'm going to give you some highlights from it. So the story goes, if you don't remember it, there's a younger son who demands basically inheritance from his father, who's nowhere near dying, but said, basically, I'm leaving the family. I want my money now. And the father actually grants his youngest son's wish. The younger son goes off, wasteful living. You can imagine what a young son might do with a lot of money who has now no more restrictions on his life. He wastes it in many, many frivolous, damaging ways. But he sees the waywardness of his ways once he runs out of money and returns begging basically the dad, hey, make me a servant. My, my, I'm out of money. My life has been wasted. I'm willing to be a servant. But before the son even gets to get those words out of his mouth, the father runs to the son, forgives him, welcomes him back into the, part, to the family and throws him a party. And so now you know why this story is called the prodigal, the, the wayward son. But Tim Keller makes a good point. The story really should be called the two lost sons, because there's another son, an older brother. Well, let me tell you about this older brother. The elder brother is the one who's kept all the rules. The elder brother is the one who has been the saluting son. Yes, father. Yes, dad. Does it all right. Did everything right. The moral one, the ethical one, the religious one. But Jesus tells the story to highlight there's not just one lost son, there are two. The elder brother who has kept all the rules is also lost. One is lost by wasting his life, right? Extravagant living, women, wine, you name it. But there's a second lost son, the older one, who actually wastes his life trying to be good enough, moral enough, religious enough to earn God's favor. There are really two lost sons. The other son, the older one, the rule keeper, is keeping all the rules, looking righteous on the outside, but in the inside is actually probably trying to manipulate the father to get what he wants, to try to earn his kindness, earn the father's favor. The two lost sons. 
Both brothers are actually refusing to live under real love from the Father. And then Tim Keller says this. He says, Jesus' great parable of the prodigal son retells a story of the entire Bible, not just this story. The story of the entire human race. See, within this story, Jesus teaches that the two most common ways to live are both spiritual dead ends. He shows how the plot lines of our lives can only find a resolution, can only find a happy ending in Jesus, in his person and his work. You see, lost people aren't just those who are obviously immoral, right? Drugs, rock and roll, right? Greed, violence. Okay, of course, that's clear. That person's far from God. But also the lost are those who reject the Father by trying to control their lives, trying to control their image, trying to prove how lovable and valuable they are. That also means you're lost. These are the kind of people who want the blessings of God, but not God himself. They love the gifts of the giver, but not the giver of the gifts. They don't really love God. They're trying to control God. Then Keller concludes by saying, Jesus does not divide the world into the moral good guys and the immoral bad guys. He shows us that everyone is dedicated to a project of self-salvation trying to use God and others in order to get power and control for themselves. We're just going about it in different ways. Even though both sons are wrong, however, the father cares for them and invites them both back into his love and feast. You see, the gospel is distinct from the other two approaches. In its view, everyone is wrong, everyone is loved, and everyone is called to recognize this and change. See, the gospel challenges both lost sons to come home. The father is inviting both lost sons back into the party. There's not just one lost son. See, the psalmist in verse 3 asks the question, how do you enter in? How do you get close to God? How can I make it back into the feast? And then Revelation 3.30, Jesus says this. He says, I stand at the door and knock, and I want you to invite me in. He wants you to know he's here, he loves you, and he wants to be invited in. So the question I leave you for today is, have you invited him in? Or do you have a vague remembrance he invited him in some years ago? Are you really walking with the Lord? He knocks and says, I want to be your king. See, Jesus tells us in Luke 15 that you can't get in to the kingdom. You can't get into God's good grace by being irreligious and immoral, nor religious and good. Those are both ways to be far from God. So if you only read verse 4, you know, he who has a clean hand and a pure heart, uh, he who does not lift up his soul to what is false, other versions say he who lifts things up to an idol, then you're going to think that you can be saved by earning God's favor, by being good, by not doing bad things. Well, then I can be saved. Well, no, 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 no. There's plenty of people going to church, plenty of people who read Christian books who are far from God. Because the only way in is by opening the door to Jesus knocking on the door of your heart, door of your mind, the door of your soul, door of your spirit. And it's a surrender. And you say, I can never earn your favor, God, by trying to be good. And I can't run away from you, God, by trying to be bad. 
There's only one way to get close to God. It's to let him in. Confess your sins and say yes. See, verses 7 through 10, we take a look again. Psalm 24, lift up your heads, O gates, and be lifted up, O ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Who is this King of glory? The Lord strong and mighty, the Lord mighty in battle. Lift up your heads, O gates, and lift them up, O ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Who is this King of glory? The Lord of hosts. He is the King of glory. You see, Psalm 24 reveals that we don't need to become better people. What we really need is a king. Did you get it? You can't run away from God by being really, really bad. And you can't get close to God by being really, really good. What you all need is a king. A king who declares you righteous. How? Because you opened the door of your heart when Jesus knocked and says, let me in. There's no other way. See, the younger brother threw off all his strength and he boldly sinned. Well, certainly that's not a path to God. That's obvious. But the gospel says neither religion or irreligion connects you to God. Only through the king. Only through the king of glory. Jesus Christ, who's knocking on the door. See, you can't get close to get it all if you want just the blessings of God. No, no, no. Then you don't really want God. You're not really letting him in. You can't get close to God by just wanting the gifts of the giver. You got to want him himself. He wants to be your king, even though we reject him by wanting to be the king of our own lives. That's good news. He still wants to come close. He's still knocking and saying, let me in. You know, tradition has it that Psalm 24, we've just been reading today, was read every Sunday in Jewish worship, but most certainly, more specifically, during the Holy Passover week. That's Palm Sunday and even through Easter. Now, the Jewish religious leadership, they had special plans for Passover week, which was our holy week, right, leading up to Easter. And so you'd see on uh, Monday, Psalm 48 would be read. Tuesday, Psalm 82 would be read. Wednesday, Psalm 94 would be read. But on the Sundays, tradition has it, Psalm 24 would be read. So that means when Jesus is entering in Jerusalem on Palm Sunday, palm branches are going down. They're yelling, Hosanna, Hosanna in the highest. Psalm 24 is being read in the temple. That the king of glory might come in. And Jesus knew Psalm 24 was all about him. He knew was declaring hundreds of years before that the true king of glory would be entering in. And then the following Sunday, that amazing, amazing reality as the king of glory is coming in, as the king of glory is dying, had died on a cross and has now emptied the tomb. Now you have an empty tomb on the Easter Sunday and that the resurrected Jesus knew that verse eight would say, who is this king of glory? The Lord strong and mighty, the Lord mighty in battle, that Jesus who battled on the cross on Friday and rose victorious on Sunday. He says, I'm the king of glory. Let me in. Who can ascend the hill of the Lord? Who can get close to God? Only if you let him in. Last thing the religious leaders of the day were thinking that Easter morning, that Sunday morning, was that the Jesus who is dead in the tomb is really the king of glory of Psalm 24. The last thing on their minds, actually the last thing on the disciples' minds was that Jesus was alive. 
See, but they didn't know that Jesus wasn't dead anymore, that Jesus was exactly who he said he was, the king of glory, the forgiver of sins, the way, the truth, the, the life, the resurrection and the life, the one who can make all the sad things come untrue in this world and will one day make all the sad things come untrue for anyone who calls upon his name. That's a truth. When you let him in, when you let him in, all the scars in your life now actually matter and make sense. All the unfinished stories actually make sense in Christ because he's the great weaver of putting things back together. I want you to watch this testimony on the screens, whether you're at home or here in person. This is a beautiful testimony of a life that is transformed when you get a picture of the king of glory in your life. Take a look. I was 17 years old, athletic, took a dive, and bang, I can't use my hands, I can't move, my legs, everything's paralyzed. I'm a quadriplegic. The doctor announced that I had severed my spinal cord at the fourth cervical level, that I'd never use my hands or my legs for the rest of my life, and he walked out of the door. I can't live like this. And I just sank into depression. A Christian friend shared with me, Johnny, God permits what he hates to accomplish that which he loves. I realized God takes no pleasure in my spinal cord injury, but he loves the way he is changing me in it and encouraging others through it. Psalm 10 says that God hears the cry of the afflicted. His heart goes out to those with disabilities. He is filled with compassion for those with special needs. I'm Johnny Erickson Tata. I'm a Christian, author, speaker, advocate, painter. Oh my goodness, I can't believe I do all those things. But I do them because I want people to know the God that I love. I would not trade this intimacy with God, this sweetness, this nearness, this tenderness, this preciousness of, of faith come alive in my life. I wouldn't trade it for any amount of walking. There are one billion people with disabilities in the world, 80% of whom live in developing nations. That is, to me, overwhelming. I want to do everything I can to make a difference in their lives. I think God is using people with disabilities to wake up the church. God is up to something big. Este es mi libro, mi historia. Si, en este es de libro. Outwardly, our bodies are wasting away, but inwardly, we're being renewed day by day. It looks as though the foot pedals need to come up just a little bit. Certainly. My husband, Ken, and I love doing Johnny and Friends together. Whether it's going to a family retreat and hanging out with other couples, whether it's delivering wheelchairs and Bibles. Is the Bible in the Spanish language? We want to get the word out. God has not abandoned those with disabilities, no. He is working through them. God's power always shows up best through weakness. The Bible says, speak up for those who cannot speak for themselves. Defend the rights of the weak and the needy. And we do that at Johnny and Friends. Through our Christian Institute of Disability, we are advocates. We are championing the disabled, whether it's right to life, end of life issues, physician assistance, suicide, euthanasia. We speak God's truth. Johnny and Friends stands for the spark that started the movement to take the gospel where the world is bleeding out of control. I want to be there. I've got a message to share. I would rather be in this wheelchair knowing him than on my feet without him. And 
that is worth living for. You know, early in Johnny's spiritual journey, she was encouraged by the thought of heaven. You know, she says this. She says, I was shriveled, bent fingers, atrophied muscles, gnarled knees, and no feeling from the shoulders down. Will one day have a new body, light, bright, and clothed in righteousness, powerful and dazzling. Can you imagine the hope that the resurrection gives someone who is spinal cord injured like me? You see, Jesus is king, and he rules over the entire world, and he promises that at that great day, someday in the future, that every knee will bow, and every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord. And that was the image that inspired Johnny to keep going. It should inspire you as well, that there's hope because the king of glory did not remain in the tomb. Jesus didn't die on the cross to be your personal assistant or to improve your life. He came to be your king. So do you know you need a king? He came to be your king. But sometimes we treat our king like a personal assistant, right? Jesus is like a supplement in our lives sometimes. A little vitamin D, some fish oil most days, a little exercise to trim the waistline, and then some Jesus to throw in there for right protection. See, Jesus doesn't want to be a supplement. He wants to be the center. He wants to be your king. So we were made as human beings to have our our lives revolve around Jesus, the King of glory. That's how you were wired to live, to exist. And if we don't center our lives around Jesus, then our lives will revolve around something or someone else. That's just the truth. Our lives will be totally out of order, centering our lives around these other idols. Yes. See, the Bible says if you don't make Jesus your king, then you'll make something else your king. You'll make something else your idol. See, when the Apostle Paul sums up the fall of humanity into sin, he describes it as idolatry when you read his letters. In fact, even verse 4, not in this version, but another version says, verse 4 says that those who come close to God do not lift up their soul to an idol. See, we all, even in 2020, are tempted to make something else our idol. Now, so idol worship was not just a problem for ancient people, it's a problem for us. So if we don't worship Jesus as our king, something else will become our king. Something else will become our idol. Even good things, when you make them ultimate things, become idols. Someone else, something else, a physical object, a person, a hobby, an identity, a career, a reputation can become your idol. Richard Keyes writes this. He says, work a commandment of God, something that's good, can become an idol if it's pursued so exclusively that responsibilities to one's family are ignored. Ever met someone who's idolized work? Then he continues, family and institution of God himself can become an idol if one is so preoccupied with the family that no one outside of one's own family is cared for. You know, anyone obsessed with their family? (laughs) Being well-liked is a perfectly legitimate hope, but that becomes an idol if the attachment to it means that one never risks disapproval. I know a lot of people are that idol, trying to look good on the outside, 
trying to hide what's going on in the inside. You see, as soon as our loyalty to anything that leads us to disobey God, to anything that makes us center our lives around that thing, we make it an idol, even good things. So you ask yourself this question before we leave today. What do I rely on to comfort myself when things go badly? That might be an idol. What do I turn to when things get difficult? That might be an idol. Or you might ask it another way. What is the thing I worry about most? That could be your idol. That thing that's the center of your life that is playing the role of king in your life when Jesus wants to be king. See, most humans define themselves by what they do, what they have, or what people say about them. So when Jesus isn't your king, the center of your life, all of those things can become idols. What you do can become an idol. What you have, the stuff you've acquired, your possessions can become an idol. What people say about you can become an idol. The good things they say about you can become an idol, make you arrogant. Or the things you wish people would say about you can become an idol because you're bitter that no one says those nice things about you. See all the chances we modern people have to have idols in our life? You see, when Jesus, he is not king of our lives, we have to create our own meaning. We have to create our own idols. But when Jesus is king, keep this in mind, you instantly become eternally significant when you say yes, when you answer that door and let the king of glory enter into your life. Your life matters and will go on for eternally with this king of glory. And then see, then everything makes sense. All your scars make sense. All the twists in your story make sense. All the ups and downs make sense. Not because he, he sent all these bad things to you, absolutely not. But it all makes sense when you have the king of glory, the center of your life. See, everything we do matters once he enters in. I love what Johnny said. Did you catch it? <clears throat> I would rather know him in this wheelchair, then be able to walk without him. Can you say that about your job, about your identity, about your possessions, about your reputation? I'd rather lose it all and still have him than have it all without him. That's how you know you've let the king in. Have you done it? See, Jesus will come one day and ask you if you've ever made him your king. So I ask you, have you done it? See, in your worst nightmares and your highest dreams, Jesus wants to be your king. You can be lost like the younger brother or lost like the older brother. He wants to be your king. He's the only person, this Jesus, who when you fail him, he forgives you. And when you fail him, he accepts you. And when you fail him, he loves you. There's no one else. No job will do that for you. No bank account will do that for you. No, no amount of goodness that will do that for you. Only the king can do that. He gives you meaning. Will you let him in? Who can ascend the hill of the Lord? Psalm 24 begins by asking. Only those who let him in. Do you pray with me? King Jesus, we recognize you're here this morning and you're here present with us physically. You're here present wherever people are watching from around the world. And Lord, I ask you right now, would you continue to speak to people's hearts and their minds 
Would you nudge them toward opening the door to your invitation to be let in? Pray for any who are maybe even saying that for the first time. King Jesus, come in. We confess our sins, Lord, whether we're like the younger brother sinning boldly or like the older brother sinning by being a good person. Lord, forgive us for trying to control you either way. And come in, cleanse me. We thank you for the truths of your word. If we confess our sins, you are faithful and just Jesus to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Lord, I pray you would uh, let those people know who've prayed that, 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 know that you are sealing them in you by the power of the Spirit. And I pray for those who've been Christians for a long time, maybe recommitting themselves and say, yeah, Jesus, I've sidelined you. I've made you a supplement. I've had other idols that have taken center of my life. Lord, I pray for them as well, that they would respond with their whole lives and say, yes, Jesus, it all belongs to you. Thank you, Lord, for your grace for your patience with us, for your love for us. And it's your name that we pray. Amen.